The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. I take a, a lot of precautions to keep my private data private, safe, and secure. I wonder if you do the same. Like, I'm not one of those people who, who uses like the same password for every website that I go to. Uh, rather, I have a unique password for every single website that I log into. All of these passwords are stored safely and securely in a password manager, which actually generates my passwords for me. And so most of my passwords are somewhere between 64 and 100 characters long. That's not an exaggeration. Anytime I'm at a coffee shop on public Wi-Fi, I use a VPN. I'm not even sure exactly what that means or how it works, but I do know that it's keeping me safe and secure as I sit there on a a public Wi-Fi network. Um, as, As... it's about to be tax season, right? As we, uh, as we send our tax documents off to our accountant, each and every single one of the PDFs that I send is password protected. And I send then our accountant the, all of the documents in one email, and then I send him a completely different message with the password for all of the PDFs that I just send him. I, I, I go to great lengths take great precautions to keep my private data private, to keep it safe and secure. And so you could imagine my reaction when I receive the dreaded letter from one of the organizations or businesses that I do business with. Have you gotten one of these letters? We're sad to inform you, Mr. Stare, that we've had a a data breach And your private data has been compromised. Sometimes they know which data points have been compromised. Sometimes not. But if you've ever gotten one of these and realized that now your social security number, your email address, your physical address, your medical history, your credit card numbers are just kind of floating out there on the dark web somewhere available for purchase, uh, you, you've probably been unsettled too. And, and the, the, the best, by the way, is when you're informed of this months possibly even years after the actual breach, and then they take the liberty of offering you uh, a year pays, uh, a, a, a free year subscription to a credit monitoring or identity theft protection service um, two years after the actual breach. That, that's, that's really helpful. Um, and so, look, data security is really important to me, and this isn't the point of the text or the sermon, but, but it should be important to you as well. But here's, here's, here's the rub with data security. You see, I, I can take all of the precautions that I, that I possibly can. I, I can. I can encrypt all my files. I can use 100-character passwords. But at the end of the day, if my data is in someone else's hands and they don't take the same precautions or there's a vulnerability that they don't know about, 
My data is only as secure as this other party is keeping it, correct? You see, the, my, my data security at the end of the day is completely out of my hands when my data is in someone else's hands. And look, our salvation, our standing before the Lord, I wonder if it doesn't feel a little bit kind of tenuous just like that to you from time to time. Right? The, the gospel tells us that, look, there's nothing that I can do to clean myself up before the Lord. There's nothing I can do to save myself from my own sin. Ultimately, it's in someone else's hands, right? Ultimately, it's in Jesus' hands. I, I don't know about you, but I like to be in control of these things, right? Which is, which is why I, I set the password to the PDFs before I send them off. But here's the thing. With, with our salvation, there's, there's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that, that you can do. You see, our, the, the safety and security of our, our salvation, our, our standing before God, is ultimately not in our hands. And we can only confess our vulnerability to, to the Lord and trust in Him to save, to save us, to, to keep us secure. And so this morning, what Paul is going to do is he is going to pull back the curtain a little bit. He's going to remind us of the safety and security precautions that the Lord has taken. He's going to remind us that our standing before the Lord is 100% completely, absolutely safe, absolutely secure. It's locked down, airtight, no vulnerabilities. And he's going to build us up and encourage us with that. And so if, if you've been tracking with us, then you know that we've been working our way through the book of, of Romans. And in past weeks, this fall, we've been moving slowly through Romans chapter 8 in particular. And so we began in Romans 8.1, seeing that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Later on, Paul reminds us in chapter 8 that Roman Christians have received the spirit of adoption, marking them as children of God, and, and more than just children of God, but heirs together with Christ, destined to receive an inheritance, destined for glory with Him. He's acknowledged in the face of of all of these glorious promises, he's also acknowledged the, the very present reality of suffering. You see, he's writing to a suffering church. The present reality of suffering, which we endure while we wait for the hope of glory, and an incomparable glory, he tells us, that will one day eclipse our present sufferings. Paul has reassured us that while we wait and while we suffer, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. He intercedes on our behalf with groanings, remember? Too deep for words. In perfect accordance with the will of God. And, and, and not only that, but he assured us that the Lord who predestines us and calls us and justifies us and glorifies us as his chosen people, he says that he, he causes 
all things, not just some things, not just most things, but all things to work together for the ultimate good of his chosen people. And then that brought us then to verses 31 through 39, where we begin seeing by, by seeing Paul ask a question. It's a question he's asked two other times in the book of Romans. And the question is this, what shall we say then? In light of all of these things, in particular the things that he's laid out in Romans chapter 8, what shall we say then? It's, it's as if to say in light of all of this, what's left to be said? What else do I need to tell you? What's left to prove? And he's going to lay out the ultimate conclusions and consequences of it all for us. And so he, he actually answers in his own question with five additional questions. Isn't that helpful? Five additional questions. He answers his question with five more. And we saw two of these questions last week, didn't we? As we saw that God is for us. He asked the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then press that a little further by saying, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? We'll have two additional questions this week. We'll get to those in a moment. And then the final question will come next week as Paul asks, asks who shall separate us? From the love of Christ. Listen to what one commentator, the late John Stott, has to say about these five questions that Paul throws out in verses 32, 31 through 39. Stott says this He hurls them into space, as it were, in a spirit of bold defiance. He challenges anybody and everybody in heaven, earth, or hell to answer them and to deny the truth which they contain. Because there is no answer. For no one and nothing can harm the people whom God has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. I love that phrase. He, he hurls them into space in a spirit of bold defiance. saying things like, who can separate us from the love of Christ? It, it reminds me, in light of data security, um, has anyone heard of the service LifeLock? That's one of these like credit monitoring, identity theft protection services. Do you remember what the CEO of LifeLock used to do on the commercials? He used to give out his social security number on the commercial. And I, I just was checking my... my, my uh, my memory here, I just checked this this morning, his identity was stolen 13 times. <laughs> like the man who is not just the president, but also the client, um, boldly, in bold defiance, hurled his social security number into space only to have his identity stolen 13 times. Well, in our, our verses today, Paul is going to ask two questions in bold defiance about the Christian's right standing before God. And unlike 
the LifeLock CEO. This, this, this doesn't put us at risk. This doesn't make us vulnerable. But rather, what, it, what he wants to do is he wants to fortify us as God's people. Fortify us in the promises that he has made. And so there, there are two questions that are very closely related to one another. And so as, as opposed to question one and two, it's more like question one A and one B. The first question is this, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And the second question, question 1B is, who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? And, and through asking these questions, this act of bold defiance, a point he wants to drive home for us this morning is this. If you sit here today and you're a Christian, you belong to Jesus, you've been united together with Jesus by faith, then your right standing before God is safe and secure. Full stop. Period. Your right standing before God is safe and secure. It might not be in your hands, but it's in really good hands. It's, it's in the Lord's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, sovereign hands. You're, you're not at risk for a security re- breach, which threatens it all. And so just like a company might lay out their data security plan following a breach, Paul is going to tell us what the Lord has done and is doing on an ongoing basis in order to keep us breach-free and eternally safe, insecure. In particular, he wants to tell us that your right standing before God is safe and secure, number one, from accusation, and number two, It's safe and secure from condemnation. And so, as we get to the the first question, these, these two questions that Paul asks in verses 33 and 34... In our two verses this morning, they, they really do kind of lead us into a courtroom setting. We, we've been in a courtroom setting before as we've been preaching through the book of, of Romans. And, and once again, he kind of leads us into a courtroom setting of sorts. And as and the, the Christian, as a Christian sits in the courtroom in the, in the defendant's chair, Paul asks this question, who has, who has another accusation to make? Who has damning evidence to bring against this man, this woman, my chosen, my elect, these people? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And and of course, it's a rhetorical question that leaves us speechless or, or at the very least requires a negative answer, right? The answer that Paul is looking for is, is no one. I do think this is a little curious, uh, if, if we're honest, because look, if you're like me, accusers abound, don't they? I, I don't know about you, but that's been my experience. And look, even as you sat here, even as you sit here today, or maybe as you made your way here, or we're wrestling with, I'm not even sure I'm going to go today, you've been 
wrestling with accusations. And so I, I wonder, I wonder who accuses you. First of all, we know that Satan accuses us. Revelation 12, he's referred to as the accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night. Who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan accuses us. And, and, and this is an ongoing business of of accusation. This is, this is who he is. Satan is an accuser. Satan is a deceiver. And so we know that Satan accuses us. We also know that the world and our enemies accuse us, don't they? Jesus reminded his disciples, he reminded them that I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He told his disciples things like, look, if they hate you, remember, they hated me first. Part of being called out of the world, being set apart from the world, is to be at odds with the world. Which means that the world is going to to hate us. Those of us who associate with Jesus, those of us who belong to him. And look, the world will take every opportunity to bring its charges and accusations against God's people, won't it? Every inconsistency, every hint of hypocrisy, every misstep, every failure to align with its own values, promote its own definition of justice, or or bow to its own gods. The the world will take every opportunity to accuse. It, it, It stands ready and willing to accuse us. And look, None of us are perfect. Not this side of of Jesus' promised return. Not this side of his his second advent. There's still indwelling sin in in your heart and mine. There's still ongoing sin in in your life and in mine. And so, uh, honestly, we we open ourselves up at times for this kind of of accusation. And and, and the world stands ready to, to, to lob grenades in our direction. And, and, then, and then there's our own conscience. At time, our, our conscience and sin accuse us, don't they? That was the battle you had this morning as you were de- de- deciding whether or not you were, gonna, you were actually going to make it here today. Our conscience tells us things like, look, you, you're not good enough. Our, our sin taunts us. You, you, you call yourself a Christian, but look at your life. Are you kidding me? You're, you're a hypocrite. You're struggling with that sin again? Look, children of a, a Christian parent or Christian parents they wouldn't act that way. Like a, a Christian marriage wouldn't struggle in that way. Look, Christian singles should be are way more content in their singleness 
than you are. Look, like real, real Christians, they don't struggle with issues of mental health. And we could go on and on and on. Our, 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 our very own sin at times accuses us. And so, so then, uh, accusers abound, don't they? Accusations abound. And again, let's be honest. The charges and accusations of our accusers aren't always wrong and off base, are they? We do still sin. Sometimes despite our best efforts to the contrary, we sin over and over in the same way. At times I am guilty of hypocrisy and so are you. I don't always live a life worthy of my calling in Christ, despite the fact that God's word calls me to that. You did buckle under the weight of temptation last night and give yourself over to sin. I'm not always a faithful ambassador for Christ with my coworkers and my neighbors. Look, the thing with all of the accusations that abound is that sometimes, sometimes the charges are true. So then how, how can the answer to Paul's question here, who shall bring any charge against God's elect, how can the answer be no one? Well, Paul wants to encourage, he wants to build up the Romans with this letter and And in so doing, he builds us up as well. He he wants them to see the powerful implications of the glorious truths that he's placed before them so far in his letter. Because look, he knows that while God's people are destined for glory, they must wait. And while they wait, ensure hope, he knows that there will also be suffering and, and waiting. Accusations charges. And so it's in these final verses in chapter 8 that Paul is fortifying the Romans for their weight. And so how do we, how do we answer this question in the negative when, when we have to acknowledge that, hey, some of these charges and accusations are true? Well, that's, this is why Paul reminds us here about our justification. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And then this, it is God who justifies. And we've talked a lot about justification as as we've worked our way through this letter to the Romans. But at this point, it makes sense for us to, to give ourselves a bit of a refresher. Because look, if, if we don't have a proper understanding of our justification in Christ and will not grasp the power of the point that Paul is driving home. And we might find ourselves buckling under the weight of accusations and charges being lobbied against us. And we run the risk of of fear and discouragement and despair when we face these accusations from Satan, the world, um, in, a, in our own sin and conscience. And so let's, let's talk about justification. Once again, here's, here's a, a definition for justification. One pastor, Eric Raymond, 
He's in the New England area, used to be a pastor in Omaha. He defines justification in this way. He says, justification is the instantaneous and irreversible divine declaration of the unrighteous as positionally righteous based upon the merit of Christ's obedience applied by grace and received through faith. And so justification is about sinners being counted as righteous. A divine proclamation, of divine declaration of the unrighteous, you and me, being counted as positionally righteous, not based upon our own merits, but based upon the merit of Christ's obedience applied by grace through faith. And, and, and so it's, it's not just, listen to this, justification isn't merely about sinners being declared not guilty. It's not just about taking bad sinners and making them morally neutral and unoffensive to God. It's not merely about sinners being just as if they'd never sinned. This isn't the, the, the full justification story. Justification, it, it goes further than that. It goes so much, so much farther than that. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson writes in his chapter on justification in his book called The Christian Life. It's an incredible book. I, I commend it to you. We actually read this one year in our, our men's reading group together. He writes this. It is sometimes said that justified means justified never sinned. Maybe you found yourself saying that. I can understand why we would say things like that because that's actually pretty catchy, right? Doubtless there is an element of truth in this, but it does not do justice to the biblical teaching. For justification does not merely take us back to square one as it were. In justification, we are not only told that Christ has paid the debt of our sins, we receive Christ's righteousness. That makes all the difference in the world when we talk about these questions that Paul is asking. In justification, we are not only told that Christ has paid the debt of our sins, we receive Christ's righteousness. We are not simply like Adam, beginning all over again. We are in Christ. In the sight of God, we are not only innocent, but as righteous as Christ is. Do you believe that about yourself today? If you are in Christ, as you sit here today, it doesn't matter what kind of week you had, it doesn't matter what kind of morning you had, it doesn't matter when the last time was that you cracked your Bible, if you're sitting here today in Christ, then you are just as righteous as Christ is because righteous with his personal righteousness. And I wonder if you dare to believe that. And so does Sinclair Ferguson. So let's consider the courtroom setting that we said Paul was taking us to. If justification simply means a return to the morally neutral, then what happens when those new charges are brought to the light? What happens when new evidence presents itself? That's a little bit scary, isn't it? Isn't that threatening? Doesn't that leave us feeling vulnerable? 
You see, a, a not guilty verdict leaves a Christian vulnerable to future charges. A verdict of, of innocent leaves us feeling susceptible to accusation, doesn't it? But as Ferguson rightly points out here, it, it is to be justified is, is to, to be so much more than declared innocent. To be justified is to be counted as righteous. And not just to be not just to be declared righteous in general, but to have Christ's perfect righteousness counted to us. It's, it's a righteousness that isn't our own. It's an alien righteousness. And it, it's a righteousness that we don't have to do anything to earn or to warrant. It's, it's a passive righteousness given to us as a gift by grace through faith. And listen, it means that when new charges are made against us, hear me say this, brothers and sisters, even if the charges are true, even if the charges are true, this means that the charges can't possibly stick. Why? Because Jesus' perfect righteousness is justly and legally counted to you. It's not our own righteousness that we're claiming. It's Christ's righteousness. And Christ's righteousness isn't threatened by the accusations of Satan. Christ's righteousness isn't threatened by the world. Christ's righteousness isn't even threatened by our own sin. Why? Because Christ stands perfect, spotless, blameless, sinless, above any and all accusation. And that righteousness is counted to you, Christian. That righteousness is counted to me. You see, the verdict is already in. Through our union with Christ, we are counted righteous. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? It's God who justifies. And so look, many will try. Many will try. But if you've trusted in Jesus, if you're in Christ by faith, then none of their charges will stick. None of their charges can stick. Who can bring a charge against God's elect, God's chosen people? No one. Why? Because they've been justified by God. And look, this, this doesn't rule out things like repentance, walking in obedience to God's word, growing in holiness, but that's a different text. Your right standing before God is safe and secure today and forevermore from accusation, Christian. Which brings us to our second question, question 1A in verse 34, in which Paul reminds us that we're also safe and secure, not just from charge and accusation, but also from condemnation. 
Now we see Paul who began the chapter with Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He now asks this question, who is to condemn? And look, this is a natural question to follow up the previous question with about bringing charge against God's elect. What does a legal charge or accusation lead to if one is found guilty? But condemnation. And so in that way, this, this question, in, in a lot of ways, I think it's an intensification of the first question. Not only that, but condemnation here in verse 34 stands in direct contrast to the Christian's justification, which Paul has just reminded us of and appealed to in, in verse 33. So then, not only is the intensity of Paul's rhetorical question dialed up, but, but so is the volume of his unspoken answer. Which again, who is to condemn God's chosen? No one. No one. And he, he hurls this, this question out into space with, with bold defiance. And in support of his conclusion, Paul points us once again to Jesus, reminding us of two things. Number one, what Jesus has done on the one hand, and number two, of what he is doing, present tense, on the other hand. So first of all, he reminds us, past tense, of what Jesus has done. Again, verse 34, who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. And so Jesus, he died on the cross to make atonement. That, that means that Jesus died on the cross to quench God's just wrath due to us for our sins. One, uh, one commentator, Charles Hodge, writes that the death of Christ could not be a proof that the believer cannot be condemned unless his death removed the ground of condemnation. And it could not remove the ground of condemnation unless it satisfied the demands of justice. His death, therefore, was a satisfaction and not merely an exhibition or love or a didactic symbol. That is a, a, a symbol intended to teach us how to live our lives, or a didactic symbol meant to impress some moral truth. What Hodge is saying here is that, is that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't just a, a, a wonderful, beautiful, warm act of love on our behalf. It wasn't just a, a display of love. It wasn't just Jesus saying, I love you this much. It was no less than that, to be sure, but it was so much more than that. And it isn't just intended to, to impress some moral truth upon us, maybe about selfless living or personal sacrifice. It moved, it removed any and all grounds for the condemnation that you and I justly deserve. That's what his death on the cross did. It removed any and all grounds, any and all basis for condemnation. Gone, quenched, paid for. You see, not only is 
the righteousness of Christ counted to us. But our sin and its wages were counted to him. The rightful verdict of guilty fell on Jesus' sinless head and he served our due sentence of death and condemnation. And his resurrection three days later demonstrated not only his victory over said sin and death, but also the Father's acceptance of the Son's sacrifice on our behalf. So what has Jesus done? He, he, he was the one who died. And more than that, who was raised. But that's not all. That's not all because what Paul wants us to hear in these two verses is that the gospel isn't just the good news of what Jesus did for us in the past. It's also the good news of what Jesus is still doing for us in the present. And and frankly, as I read these two verses, I think this is the evidence of these two verses. They lead us on a progression to our ascended Savior who we're told is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. These verses build. They build and they they take us to the throne room where the ascended Christ is right now. And do you know what the ascended Christ is doing right now? By the way, this isn't just something the ascended Christ was doing right then for the Romans, but he's doing it right now for us too. What is he doing? He's interceding for us. A few weeks ago, we saw that the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. Praise the prayers. We don't have the words to pray in perfect accordance with God's will. The Holy Spirit that lives in us intercedes for us. And here we see that the Son is also interceding for us at the right hand of God. He's pleading our case on our behalf. Right now as you sit here, right now as the accusations fly, right now as as some may seek to condemn you, he's pleading your case, he's interceding before you know, no, my, my perfect righteousness is counted to her. No. No, I I suffered for that. I My body was broken for that. I bled for him. I bled for her. I paid the wages of sin. I paid the wages of death for that sin. I quenched your wrath for that. I rose again in victory over that sin, over death. This is what what our risen and ascended Savior is doing right now. This is why the ascension is, while it, I think it's neglected in the church, it's why it's so important that we, that we give time and attention to the ascension, that we, that we consider just the, the, the mind-blowing truth of the fact that we, we have a, an ascended Savior who's seated at the Father's right hand, interceding for you right now, interceding for us right now, pleading our case right now. As we close here, I want to take you to uh, 
prophet Isaiah, certainly as Paul was writing these words to the Romans, he, he had these words in mind from the prophet Isaiah chapter 50. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? You hear the same taunting words, don't you? Bold defiance. Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Look, if you're sitting here today, if you belong to Jesus, then your right standing before God is safe. It's secure. And you can stand up in boldness even on the receiving end of accusations. Knowing that you're, you're standing before God, it's, it's safe, it's secure from accusation, it's safe, it's secure from condemnation, it can't be undone. No one can derail it, no one can undermine it, not even you. It can't be ruled null and void due to a loophole or fine print, or a technicality. Can't be paid for on the dark web by some hacker. Your justification, it's, it's airtight. Your standing before God is locked down under the impenetrable, impenetrable security of the sufficiency of Jesus' righteousness imputed to you. You're standing before God. It's, it's locked down under the impenetrable security of the sufficiency of Jesus' death and resurrection for you. It's locked down under the impenetrable sec- security of his ongoing intercession for you at the right hand of God. Brothers and sisters, as you sit here today, as you go about your week, as we live in this, this tension that Paul talks about here in Romans 8 between what already is and what is still to come. This, this tension that we, that we experience and, and we remember in the Advent season, this tension between Jesus' first coming, his first Advent, and the second. Brothers and sisters, you, you're standing before God. Your eternal security and salvation It is safe and it is secure. Let's pray. Father, Lord, the the world, it's 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 full of danger, it's it's full of threats, accusations abound. And Lord, we need help. We we need a hiding place. We need a place of refuge and safety. Lord, we need you to to fortify us. We need you to, 
to strengthen us to endure for the, for the day when we receive our inheritance, to, for, the, for the day when, when we are glorified with our Savior, when, when, we, when we share in his glory. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that, that you have given us the safety, the security that we need, Lord. Thank you that we are free from condemnation. Who is to condemn? Lord, thank you that the verdict is in and that the charges won't stick. They, they can't stick. And so, Lord, we just, we're, we're, we're in awe of the perfection of Jesus, of the all-sufficiency of, of, of his work and his grace and his righteousness that is imputed to us. Lord, would we... Uh, would we be stirred to worship and to good works by these truths? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.